Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to my time capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens with another episode of the podcast where people talk to me about the five things from their life that they'd like to preserve in a time capsule. Four things they cherish and one they rather regret and would like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest choosing some things for their time capsule in this episode is the Scottish stand-up comedian Fred McCauley. Having presented very funny and eventful Macaulay & Co. on BBC Radio Scotland for almost 18 years, and with a string of TV appearances, Fred's easygoing manner is born of years of experience on the live circuit, including a stint as the first-ever Scottish compare at the Comedy Store in London. Fred has been a regular at the Edinburgh Fringe since the early 1990s and at comedy festivals worldwide. Appearances on many Radio 4 comedy panel shows, including I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue, Just a Minute, The Unbelievable Truth and The News Quiz, of course, have guaranteed an audience for Fred's live stand-up tours. He hosted the talk show McCoyst and McCauley and presented Life According to Fred, Hoots, Simply Fred and Scots on the Box, as well as the 2014 On the Road magazine programme with Martel Maxwell, all for BBC Scotland. And on the national BBC, he's been a panellist on shows including Mock the Week, QI and Have I Got News for You. He lasted seven out of 11 nights when he sang on Comic Relief Does Fame Academy and further charity challenges saw him kayak the Caledonian Canal for sports relief in temperatures as low as minus 18 degrees Celsius and in 2011 he scaled Mount Kilimanjaro. He received an honorary doctorate from the University of Dundee, his alma mater, in 2006 in appreciation of his time there as rector. So, let's hear what Dr. Fred is going to choose to put into his time capsule. Hope you enjoy it. <laughs> but we, like everybody else in the world, have a, a, a family Zoom yeah. uh, with my side of the family on a 
a Sunday and Aileen's side of the family on the Monday and Aileen's mum bless her is still with us at 91 brilliant and um, she she gets talked through how to get onto Zoom every <laughs> Monday for the last 15 weeks and yeah. then uh, she says but I can only see one person <sighs> oh well if you touch the screen Gran you'll see a, a grid thing oh yes I see that now <laughs> <laughs> oh there you all are <laughs> my mother-in-law is with us uh, and we got her an iPad and uh, she kept saying, as a man keeps talking to me in my room. <laughs> and uh, we explained to her that it was Siri. Oh, man, that's brilliant. Did you see somebody online the other day? Sorry, we, we should really get on with the business. That we're <laughs> it's all right. No. Somebody the other day who couldn't get their Alexa to turn Times Radio off. <laughs> no. Stop playing that. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> Stop it! <laughs> I've got a sledgehammer. Yeah. <laughs> Alexa, we've been through this before. Um, but yeah, and our, my first bit of technology through Google, um, we've, we've got Google Home Hub. Mm. Jack, our middle kid, bought us Google Home Hub and uh, Philips smart bulbs uh, for Christmas right. a couple of years ago. You know, so you're just going to say, hey, Google, lights on. And it's as simple as that, except it's not, because uh, he set it up through his phone. So there have been times, Mike, at quarter to midnight when I've had to phone Jack and ask him to put the living room lights off. (laughs) Perfect present. (laughs) He's in Edinburgh, we're in Glasgow. Put the fucking lights off. (laughs) How to keep in touch with your children. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, I'm doing this podcast with my son. So we see each other uh-huh. sort of at a distance, but it, it means that right. I'm constantly phoning him saying, how do I make this thing public on Facebook? How mm-hmm. do I do this? Mm-hmm. I have no idea at all. And yeah. I can't do any of it, you know. So I've absolutely drilled myself in how to set myself up for a recording. <laughs> and I would say one in five go well. <laughs> oh, well, uh, am I the fifth? <laughs> you're, you're number five. You're there. <laughs> I like the odds. Good. All right. So we should do it. Yeah. Basically, it's five little things from your life that are not significant to other people, but for you, they evoke a memory. And then one which you sort of don't like. That's it. Yeah. Simple. So what's your first thing, Fred? Well, I've got to say, Mike, there there are varying shapes and sizes, and I don't know how big the capsule is going to be. But the first thing I wanted to put in was uh, the Comedy Store logo, Uh which, uh, apart from being the Comedy Store logo, is also the backdrop of the stage at the Comedy Store in London. Yeah. And it was such a significant part of my life. And, you know, over a 30-plus year career, Mm. you know, I still describe myself first and foremost as a stand-up, you know, albeit I did a... Uh, a stint on radio for 18 years up here in Scotland, but I would always still want to be considered a, as a stand-up comedian. And the comedy store was the place that I wanted to play when I first started doing stand-up. Mm. It was a place that I was blessed to to play uh, over a number of years. And and you know, lockdown uh, for by uh, I I still you know I've got a booking in my diary. <laughs> <laughs> for the comedy store. Uh, so I'm hopeful that I will get back in there at some point in yeah, the future again. We all are. Yeah. At least you don't think of yourself then as an accountant. No. Although, you know, I still get interviews where people say, so you were an accountant, you became a comedian. How did that happen? And I say, well, let me tell you, I was shit as an accountant. <laughs> 
<laughs> it was no square peg in a round hole. Yeah, let me show you the spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, no, the fact was that I, I did carve out for myself a, a career, yeah. uh, crunching numbers, and then I became company secretary of a of a retail group, and it was you know it was a bloody good job, yeah. but uh, I knew it wasn't for me. I always wanted to to do something a wee bit more exciting uh, with my life, and I, I I could remember having been still at university uh, where I studied accountancy, so <laughs> uh, but. That was really just a process of elimination. I studied accountancy because I thought it might get me a job. Yeah. I mean, that was the, that was the mid seventies when, you know, when financial crises were still a kind of novelty. <laughs> <laughs> They're not the norm that they have now no. become. Thank God you got out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and it was a significant birthday. It was my 30th birthday that, uh, kind of, I realized that I'd, suddenly a decade had gone past. Yeah. And I still wasn't, I still wasn't, um, on people's televisions. Mm. So uh, I decided to try and make a go of it <laughs> back in those days. Um, yeah, how did you do it back in those days? How? Because there just wasn't the circuit then, was there? There wasn't, no. Yeah. And Mike, you'll remember, I mean, uh, when even when I started doing the Fringe, which was late 80s, 89, yeah. was my first Fringe. The Fringe brochure was a pamphlet. <laughs> I mean, it was a tiny thing. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's, a, you know, and th- these are two words that an awful lot of people won't have a clue what we're talking about. It was like a phone directory. <laughs> Remember them? No, I don't know. I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm only 35. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, phone directories were, were what kicked off paper recycling. Yeah. <laughs> they still do. <laughs> yeah. So, no, but you're right. There was no route, and the, the people that were on TV were, you know, very mainstream, and, and I knew that wasn't what I wanted to do. But bless them, the the Edinburgh Fringe kicked a thing off called, uh, and Karen Corn at the Gilded Balloon especially mm. kicked off the So You Think You're Funny competition, which runs to this day. Yeah. And Glasgow, being a rival city to Edinburgh, used to have an arts festival called Mayfest. Mm-hmm. And Mayfest was an extraordinary arts festival. <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story about Mayfest's philosophy in a wee minute. But they also ran a So You Think You're Funny competition. and So you think you're funnier than Edinburgh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I, one of my... He's sadly no longer with us. Uh, a late friend, Kenny Harris, said that the Glasgow equivalent was called So You Think You're Funny? Well, you fucking Arnie. <laughs> I think it was Barry Cryer told me a story about a bloke at the the Glasgow Empire playing Hamlet, where he he said, uh, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, and his voice said, hey, that'll be Friday. (laughs) (laughs) I got a call from Barry last week. Did you? He phoned me up and he said, uh, and it was a message, a voice message. I phoned him back the next day because he said, Fred, voice from the past, it's Baz, um, you're on Room 101 tonight oh, <laughs> on Dave. And I phoned him back and I said, Barry, I, I never recorded Room 101. <laughs> I it's maybe one of the things that somebody put in Room 101. He said, oh, no, no. He said, it, it, it must have been a QI then. It was a QI. Oh, bless you. <laughs> so, I actually thought about putting Barry in the time capsule, oh. but he, he seems to be in one anyway. Yeah, I think you're right. He's preserved. <laughs> I know that. So anyway, yeah, sorry, you yeah. were talking about so, Glasgow yeah. Mayfest. So um, they, they did. They saw you think it funny, uh, and you had to submit original material to one Simon Fanshawe. I know Simon Fanshawe. Yeah. 
So I submitted my few minutes of uh, original material and Simon called me up at work and said, we like your stuff and you're on on the 19th of May uh, in the heat. Right? <laughs> so that was that was uh, terrifying. Yeah. And uh, it was another guy that you would know very well, uh, Pete McCarthy, mm. who compared the gig. Ah, bless him. Um, yeah, and uh, <laughs> naively, you know, I, I did my five minutes and I think there was maybe eight or nine comics and uh, I thought, oh, well, that, I, I really enjoyed that. I'll, I'll hang around and just pick up the trophy and make a few <laughs> comments. <laughs> <laughs> of course, uh, the, the top three went through to the final. And I, I had to sneak out of the room embarrassed mm. that I, I didn't even make the top three. But a lot of Scottish comics made their debut at that, at that thing. Um, <laughs> and they were better than they, you. <laughs> each and every one of them but I knew it, it was one of those nights that really did change my life because I, I could not wait to get back on stage again and yeah. you know one of the things about it Mike was just physically holding a microphone mm. because I thought that defined me as a comedian that was that was something that I had done that nobody else in my circle of friends or relations had ever done was hold a microphone yeah uh, and I thought that's one step of me on my way to becoming a, a comic. Mm. Obviously, I, I learned that I needed material as well. <laughs> <laughs> but that was later on. Yeah, but the thing I always admire about stand-up comedians, and I've, I've tried it once or twice, not very successfully, on my own. Uh, and I still actually have an ambition to have a go one day because I know it would terrify me. And actually, that sort of yeah. slightly excites me. It's the fear that makes me want to do it. But I've always admired stand-up comedians because, in fact, they really embrace that fear. Uh, and, in fact, you talk to stand-up comedians and they often say, oh, I did this gig where, God, I absolutely died. <laughs> and they relish it. Because we've recovered from it. Yeah, yeah, I made it through. Yeah. And learned from it, I suppose, you know. Uh-huh. But you wouldn't have that conversation with them at 20 past 11 the night it happened. No. No. As they're sobbing in a corner. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, the excitement and the fear thing is, I mean, I would urge you to do it because that is the one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that if it works, there is mm. honestly no better feeling in the world. I mean, it's an incredible buzz to get and it's you know it's almost like we we keep that as a secret to ourselves yeah um, and obviously I'm helping do that by doing your podcast <laughs> thanks very much <laughs> <laughs> but the excitement and fear I mean that that reared its ugly head a few years ago when somebody in America came up with an idea called set list now you and I have got friends who work in improvised comedy and they're geniuses at it. Mm. And you know, I think going back to the comedy store, the comedy store players, uh, yeah. to my mind, are, are just second to none. They're phenomenal. Mm. But they came up with this idea called Setlist and it was for stand-ups. Right. And you go on stage, you face the audience and there are two screens in the room, one facing the audience and one facing you. And you just kind of introduce yourself at the start and then pop up comes your first topic and you have to go into that as if it's a bit of stand-up material. Wow. Right? Now, you can choose either to crowbar in some of your shtick if you want or you can treat it the way it's meant to be treated and just go into it yeah. and buy into it. Yeah. And that was absolutely terrifying. And the first time I did that, I got a flashback to that 19th of May, 1988, <laughs> you know, when Pete McCarthy introduced me and I walked on and it was... yeah. 
terrifying. Completely you know, out of your comfort zone. Totally. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you will have a, I would say with set list, and I've done it maybe a dozen times, and I've done it at Edinburgh, I've done it at Melbourne, at the Comedy Festival there, and I did it in LA. Mm. Uh, that was the last time I did it, in 2015. And when I do it at the Edinburgh Fringe, you've got a bit of a reputation, and I would say a number of the people in the audience will know you. Yeah. But in Los Angeles... <laughs> Nobody had any idea who this guy was, and I absolutely loved it. I loved it. Yeah, because if you it's, hit it, it's just if you get it, you know, you suddenly, oh. from off the top of your head, come up with something that makes people laugh. That must be joyous. Correct. Yeah. It is. I mean, and it is the essence of what we do is, yeah. is creating. And I, I don't think I've ever been more creative than having been put on the spot like that. Mm. I think I'd be better at that than I would be at actually rehearsing and performing a stand-up routine. <laughs> I'd feel more willing to have a go at that than actually, oh, God, here's the 10 minutes yeah. I practice because I don't have any faith in that at all. But you see that, I mean, what you do, I, I, I am useless at remembering lines. Right. So that's why I could, I could never be an actor, or if I did, it would have to be in a sort of three-line play. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's about the most that I could remember. And the things when I'm trying to remember, you know, doing pieces to camera for, you know, as I've, I've done sort of travelogues and uh, that kind of stuff, doing a 100-word piece to camera, I just look absolutely rabbit in the headlines. <laughs> uh, just desperately trying to remember what the words were, you know, I, yeah. I would need full-time autoscript. Do you remember the first date that you stood up in front of that logo at the comedy store then? I do, yes. Uh, and the, the comedy stores have been in three locations in in London. Uh, the one just now is Oxenden Street mm -hmm. between Leicester Square and Piccadilly Circus. Uh, previously, it was in Leicester Square, and that's where I first performed. Yeah. But before that, it was in Dean Street, sort of, in a corner building, mm. and uh, that's, I think it was in a, a quasi-strip club. Mm. In fact, it was probably a strip club. I had no idea, <laughs> having said the words now, what a quasi-strip club would be. <laughs> Might take my clothes off. Might not. not. <laughs> and um, I I took Aileen when, when we were uh, going out with each other. We went to London for a weekend, pretty early 80s, before I'd ever got on stage, but while I still knew in my own mind that I wanted to try and give it a go. Yeah. And we went to the, the old, old comedy store where there was a comedian on that night called Barry Diamond who was visiting from America and he shared the same management as the police. <laughs> so at the table next to us was Sting and his new girlfriend, Trudy Styler, which was <laughs> of much more interest to Aileen than the acts that were on stage that mm. night. Anyway, but it was in the Leicester Square one when I, I first did, uh, I did some stand-up. And it was I was booked to do it through a, a contact that Karen Corn at the Gilded Balloon, who has been a great supporter of mine over the years, mm. she was friends with Kim Kinney, who managed the comedy store in those days. Kim had seen me do a five-minute spot, gave me uh, some gigs at the comedy <laughs> store way too early in my career, and uh, I did not do terribly well. No. And it was a year or, year or so before I got back. Yeah. But, and uh, then it goes right through your career. Yeah. So have you ever done the Comedy Store Players? Never done the Comedy Store Players, although I have gigged with them, uh, but not in the Comedy Store. 
Yeah. Um, they once did a tour, Mike, uh, where they would bring a guest on from wherever they were and they would talk to you about your life. Yeah. And then they recreated an aspect of your life on stage with uh, you uh, as part of it. And I, I can remember it was it was very funny, but it was also very touching as well. Mm. I mean, they're, they're, they're really yeah. extraordinary. Uh-huh. I did do the Comedy Store Players on a couple of occasions. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, my Just God. Just when they, they went, well, come and have a go, Mike. And I have to tell you, I really was lost the whole time. And they're so gentle and so kind. They sort of pick you up and carry you through it. Marvellous. Yeah, and there, there were people in the audience that think, yeah, yeah, you know, it's all, it's all scripted. They couldn't come up with that. But they genuinely do. Mm. Yeah, amazing. Do you, know, do you know, I think that the brain is a kind of a, a muscle in that respect to it. I think the, the more you do it, the, the more capable you are. Definitely. You know? I'm absolutely certain of that. I've uh, the closest I've got to it, really, in practicing it is doing uh, dame in pantomime, uh, where uh-huh. you you have a script, you know what you're going to say, and you have your jokes, but you always have to be open to playing with the audience and reacting uh-huh. to what they're doing. And that, when you first do it, you sort of go, "Sorry, sir, what did you say?" And they say, "You say, oh, that's interesting," and then you go back to the script because you're, <laughs> you're terrified. <laughs> <laughs> Great improv. I'm writing that down as a heckle put down. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> All right, Fred, I'm going to put the logo from the comedy store. You can stand in front of it anytime you like, oh. and I'll put a mic there for you to hold. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. So what's your second item? Well, um, I'd like to stick in some sports equipment, if I might. Okay. Um, as a wee boy, uh, I was introduced to skiing. We lived in uh, Blairgowrie, or Rattray, actually. Rattray and Blairgowrie were kind of twinned, like Minneapolis and St. Paul's, or, <laughs> uh, on a much smaller scale. But uh, we weren't too far away from Glenshee, and I'd been a keen skier since the age of 10. Wow. And I've decided that I'd like to put in my, my very first pair of skis, if that's all right. They might be a wee bit big to put in a time capsule, but they were 100% wooden. Really? Yeah, back in the day. And they were secondhand, and they were made by a, a company that no longer exists called Hagen, H-A-G-A-N, yeah. Hagen Combis. Uh, do you ski, Mike? Oh, I have skied occasionally. I'm not very right. good at it. Well, I mean, now they're they're made of various metals and fiberglasses and carbon and all, all the rest. And of much it. shorter. Absolutely, yeah. much shorter. Yeah. Um, I mean, the longest skis I ever had were 205 centimeters, and my current skis are are 168. Yeah. So what I was doing with the extra 30 odd centimeters, <laughs> I have no idea. You were just going straight, <clears throat> almost impossible <laughs> to turn. <laughs> exactly. And the reason I, I'm going to tell you the, the story of these Hagen combis. I do. Because they meant so much to me. Um, we weren't really blessed in Scotland with a, what you would call a full snow cover. So there was always a chance you were going to hit either rocks or heather. And mm. you'd be hoping it was the latter. Um, <laughs> but it was more often the former. Uh, and the rocks would gouge great holes in the soles of your Hagen combis. And the edges were screw in and the bindings were cable bindings. Good your Lord. ski boots were laced up. You had an inner boot and an outer boot. And if you were wealthy enough to have ski pants, they went inside your boots. <laughs> um, and what I had were a, a pair of denims that my mum would put a bit of elastic along the bottom. Yeah. Uh, so they didn't, they didn't ping up out of the boots. <laughs> And goodness knows how I survived at the age I am because I was probably hypothermic 
yeah. twice every weekend. But I loved it. And my father, bless him, who was a police officer and mum wasn't working in those days. So we weren't, there wasn't a great deal of cash flying about. So with my second hand, Hagen's, I would go home after two days skiing. Dad would screw in new edges. He would use a sort of plastic wood thing that he had bought to fill in the holes. <laughs> and then every week painted the soles of the skis with a car paint that he had. <laughs> and then once that had dried, he would wax them and they'd be dried out and ready just to get destroyed again the next weekend. Wow, what dedication. I know, it was fantastic. You know, it really was. And uh, an old pal uh, recently sent me a photograph of myself and him and another buddy standing at Glen Shee. And I think it might have been the second season that I skied, so I would have been 11. Mm. And uh, it really is, I, it is an historic photo. I mean, it's it's <laughs> over 50 years ago, and it's all not quite the birth of skiing in Scotland, but it was within the first decade of there being uplift in Scotland for, for skiers. Um, and it just looks like one of these old black and white photos you would see maybe in a a lodge in some place in where are they now in the Austrian Alps? Yeah, so that's it. if I if I can I'd stick in either my skis or the other sport that we were in the habit of playing up in Perthshire in Scotland, of course, was golf, which mm. was a much more working class game. And as I said, there wasn't a great deal of money flying about. And my first, and I use the word inadvisedly, set of golf clubs, uh, it was just a random, uh, they were all wooden shafted, but uh, somebody had handed into the police station at Blair Gowrie uh, a lady's seven iron that had a steel shaft and it wasn't claimed within six months. So my dad stuck that in my bag <laughs> and the boys that I was playing with all had steel shafted clubs. It was surprising to me just how often I would look at the pen and think, well, that's a seven iron. <laughs> That'll be the one. It's a seven iron from here. <laughs> I could hit a seven iron anything from 50 to 170 yards. <laughs> Both of those things, Mike, are a, a reminder of kind of where I've come from. Yeah. Um, you know, growing up in Perthshire was idyllic, mm. you know, various towns and villages because we had to move about because dad was a, a cop. Places like Callander and Killin. Killin's at the the end of Loch Tay, uh, where it's, the, the River Tay is famous in Scotland as a, as a fishing mm. river, but the loch is filled from the, the waters of the, the River Dochert. Right. And then you've got the loch, and then out of the loch at the Kenmore end comes the tay, the tay, the silvery tay, which McGonagall wrote about. <laughs> and uh, Did you ever get to fish on the tay, or, do, or was everything private? Well, there's a lot of private beats, mm. there's no doubt about that. But yeah, I, I did fish on the tay <laughs> as a youth and caught flounders right. and eels. Yeah. But never never a salmon. Never a and, salmon. And in no. those days, my God, Mike, I, I don't know if you fish, but in those days, the number of salmon that they pulled out of the River Tay in the 60s and 70s, I mean, it's tens of thousands, and it's pretty much all gone, sadly. Yeah. But, yeah. So did you have to move school a lot when you were young then? Yeah. Oh. So I, I was educated at four schools. So I started off at Killin Primary, yeah. then Rattery Primary, Blair Gowrie High School, and then Perth Academy, and Perth Academy was a great school, still is. And I had uh, 
I had the Latin. We, we, <laughs> at, at Blair Gary High School, I had been put into the, the top stream, so we were deemed smart enough to learn the Latin. <laughs> and so when we moved into to Perth, and the police houses were in housing schemes, right? So we were yeah, in a, yeah. a housing scheme in Schoon, and every other boy and girl in our, our scheme... Oh, excuse me. That's right. Hello. Oh, hi, Gran. Isn't it just, if you hang on, I'm just on a, another call just now, but I'll give Aileen a shout. See if she's going. Hello. <laughs> she's there. Okay, thanks, Gran. Bye. And we're back. So that was Gran. That was Gran. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just asking yeah, how to yeah. work the iPad. <laughs> <laughs> So she's uh, she's a great old girl. She's uh, she's the only relative of that generation that we've got left. So, so did you say ninety one? Did you say she was? Yeah, wow. ninety one. Yeah, still driving too. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, where were we? We were uh, the housing scheme. Yeah, the housing yeah, so, scheme for the police yeah. homes. I remember there was always one yeah. of those, always on the estates, weren't they? That's right. Yeah. So uh, every other boy and girl in the estate went to Perth High School. Mm. And I, I had to go to the academy because I had this, the Latin. <laughs> and and uh, went to get a bus in from Schoon into Perth. So I used to stand at the bus stop every morning uh, being abused by everybody else that mm. was going to the different school because, you know, yeah. clearly if you went to a different school, you were different. <laughs> so, I, you know, I overcame that and I became friends with the guys and, you know, they became my playmates yeah. and all the rest of it. You could always just put them down by quoting some Latin at them. <laughs> they wouldn't have the faintest <laughs> idea. I'm sorry, I'm just being ad hoc. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine the beatings? I can indeed. <laughs> well, lovely. I mean, those skis, you must have inherited them from somebody pre-war, really. Yeah, it would have been. And there was a, a family in Blair Gowrie. You know, there was a few people uh, used to go skiing. And I always admired the, the equipment that they had, right? Because yeah. I, you know, step in bindings. Oh, my goodness. None of this leaning forward and getting the cables up the back of your boots and pushing them forward and locking <laughs> them in. None of that. You just stepped and clicked into them. So I remember distinctly every new piece of ski equipment I got over the over the years, Mike, you know, from yeah. clip-up boots yeah. and step-in bindings and then my blizzard alu glass mm. skis and all the rest of it. And after university, I worked for the for a chairlift company. I worked for the Cairngorm chairlift company for three years as the assistant accountant. <laughs> so um, you got free passes? Free passes, wow. and you could ski in your lunch hour. <laughs> Tremendous. Brilliant. And it also gave me one of my very early gags. I, I used to say, uh, before I became a comedian, I was an accountant. I said, in fact, I was the second highest paid accountant in Scotland because my office was at 2,100 feet. <laughs> there we are. Yeah. yeah. That was as good a laugh as it ever got, I'll tell you. <laughs> yes, we see what you did there. That, that yeah, sort of reaction, yeah. the nodding reaction to yeah. a joke. I yeah. know it's not good, is it? No. Well, um, I've been skiing in uh, in uh -huh. Scotland. In Scotland. Right. Whereabouts? Well, we went to Fort William. Right. Uh -huh. I went because my son, when he was about 13, 
he was having a tough time at school. And I said to him, well, come on, let's go away. Let's have a, have a long weekend away, half term or something. Just you and me, we're going to have a lad's weekend away. Where do you want to go? And I was thinking, you know, Rome, maybe, or, you know, <laughs> Nice. Uh-huh. And he said, I've never been to Scotland. And I said, I know, but it's it's winter. He said, well, can we go uh-huh. skiing in Scotland? And I went, okay. And we went to Fort William. And, God, it was freezing. And it, uh-huh. it was so icy because he also, being 13, wanted to snowboard. Of course. Which, if you're going to do it for the very first time, you don't want to do it on basically sheet ice. <laughs> so it was a disaster. And, in fact, we flew into Edinburgh mm-hmm. and then got a hire car. And the landing was so awful. It's the worst landing in an aeroplane I've ever had. We were terrified, and I was trying to not look terrified. And I think for my sake, he was trying not to look terrified. And then uh, just before we were due to come back, I said, so we'll, we've got two more days, and then we're going to have to go and get the uh, the plane. And, of course, he froze in terror uh-huh. at the thought of it. And I said, um, or we could leave now and drive all the way home. And he went, yeah, yeah, yeah let's do that, yeah. Yeah, yeah let's, do that. let's do that. So we did. <laughs> And the hire company's been chasing you for the car ever since. They'll never get it it back. They think I'm in Scotland. (laughs) (laughs) I I use the name Fred McCauley. It's fine, don't worry. (laughs) I did a tour about five years ago and um, included Fort William Mm. on the list of towns that I was going to go and see. And it's a pretty godforsaken place. And uh, I was getting some physiotherapy at the time. And I was in getting physio in the morning and the physiotherapist, a lovely girl, said, where are you off to uh, on your tour? I said, well, I'm in Fort William tonight. She said, oh, well, you'll get a shag or a fight. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe both. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, brilliant. All right, well, Fred, I'm going to take those lovely wooden skis I'm going to make sure your dad's made them, you know, look new. Uh-huh. A coating of paint and new edges. Right. And uh, we'll put them in there. They're ready for you. Excellent. You can relive your childhood skiing enjoyment. Yeah. Well, it'll be back to snowplow and those things. Uh, so that's two items. So what's your third item? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Okay, let's get straight back to Fred McCauley and find out what his third item for the time capsule is. Okay. Well, the third is maybe a continuation of uh, who I am and where I've come from, mm. but this is actually, and, and it is, it's a framed thing of my family tree. Right. So I am the fourth Frederick Macaulay from a line of Macaulays. And the, the family tree always does seem to be a, a father to son thing. You know, that's, there, there is one line that you go up with the family tree. And my father had decided as the third Fred that he wasn't going to have Frederick as a son. Because with his father being Fred, my dad was always referred to as we Fred. Ah. And he hated being we Fred and he wasn't going to make anybody else go through their life as a wee Fred. Your dad is a very thoughtful man, isn't he? He spends the whole time he repairing your he skis. And, and, <laughs> and then he thinks, I'm not going to put him through the torture I've had. I like your dad. He was a great guy. Um, and so I've got an elder brother, and he's called Duncan. Right. So the, the chain was broken. Yeah. Uh, and then, rather sadly, just a few weeks before I was born, my grandfather passed away. Right. And they had a change of heart and a change of mind, and they decided that I would be christened Frederick Macaulay. Mm. But rather than taking part of the name and calling me Fred, they took the other part of the name, and I was known for the first 13, 14 years of my life as Derek. (laughs) Fred Derek. I was hoping it was just going to be Rick, but... Derek. Rick. <laughs> Rick. Uh, but no, Derek. So I was Derek Macaulay until I went to, to Perth Academy. Uh, mm. And I went there after Easter break. So I had one term at Perth Academy as Derek Macaulay. And then the, the class lists went up for third year. And our class captain, an old, old pal, and sadly he's no longer with us, Kenny McCluskey, said, right, here we go. 3-1. And he went through all the names. 3-2. And F. Macaulay. Who's F. Macaulay? I said, "Uh, that's me. He said, I thought your name was Derek. I said, no, it's Frederick. He went, all right, lads, he's not called Derek, he's called Fred. And that was was my name was changed. That was changed by by my pal, Kenny McCluskey. So people before who knew me before I was 13 and family still called me Derek. People subsequently called me Fred. So anyway, I digress again. So... The Macaulay family are from the Outer Hebrides. Mm-hmm. And uh, a friend of mine who is a, a GP and very much enjoys looking into people's histories decided she would do my family tree for me. Brilliant. And she went all the way back. And I've got it. I, and, and I'll send you a photo. I'll send you a photo of it, Mike. Do. And the reason I want my family tree in this is to prove something because the Macaulay's. And this is an interesting story. Grandfather Fred was born in Harris in 1885. Mm. And at the age of 30, in 1915, enlisted in the Cameron Highlanders and went off to fight in the First World War and got an injury in June 1916 for which he was hospitalised. And it was fortunate, in inverted commas, that that happened because his entire battalion was wiped out at the Somme when my grandfather was in hospital, Mm. right, 800 men. And when Grandpa came out of uh, hospital, he was moved from the uh, Cameron Highlanders into the King's Own Scottish Borderers. Right. So here was this wee Highlander whose first language was Gaelic. 
God. Trying to take commands from somebody that was brought up in Selkirk or yeah. Melrose or someplace like that. I don't think they understood a bloody word they said to each other, but anyway. And all his compatriots were gone, basically. All gone. Incredible. The, the whole, every damned man. Mm. Marching behind the pipes. Yeah. I mean, the, I their fighting dress was a kilt, oh. right? I mean, they, they would... I mean, astonishing. Mm. Uh, and I'd love to know more about that period of my, my grandfather's life. Yeah. So he uh, he was in Harris, and he lived in Harris because his father was a gamekeeper on Avonsui Estate. Mm. And he moved there as a keeper. But before him, the, the Macaulays were from Lewis. Right. As was a certain 45th president of the United States mother, <laughs> a Mary McLeod. Oh. From Stornoway, Mary McLeod's mother was a Macaulay. No. Yes. And the reason I want my family tree in is because even on a small island like Lewis and Harris, there were sufficient Macaulays that I am no relation to Donald John Trump. <laughs> and I want that recorded as a matter of fact for time immemorial. You want absolute proof out there. Absolutely, there is no, and as you as you can see, Mike, <laughs> I'm, I'm somebody that is proudly bald and yeah. uh, would not under any circumstances do to the top of my head what that man has done to his. <laughs> I mean, he's he's culpable of many misdemeanours, but I think that's probably up there in the top three. Well, I can understand your desire not to be associated <laughs> with the man. So that's a simple one. That's that's the family tree. It's really lovely. That so after the war, when he came back, yes, did he then move down to the borders? Well, no, he 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 didn't. He came back and um, he settled in Glasgow mm. originally, and he survived the war. He, he he had another injury at another point. He was hospitalised again, but uh, he he survived the war. Obviously, he survived the war. And he came back, and I don't know the the timeline, but he got a job as a gardener in Glasgow, mm. in one of the, the big parks in Glasgow. Uh, and I know he was in Glasgow for at least six months. And then he moved up to Perth. Mm. But whether he was up and down to the islands then or not, I don't know. No. But as you know, the islands in Scotland were devastated. I mean, the, the, the number of casualties uh, at the war were horrific. Mm. So... What that then meant was that there were a number of young lassies on Harris and Lewis with no prospect of finding a, a partner. No. So when my grandfather settled in Perth, three of his sisters came down and uh, by all accounts they were bonnie girls and two of them managed to, to pick up a husband, hmm. one of whom was a senior salesman for Dewar's Whiskey. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Aye, and the other one uh, had a hotel in Perth. Oh, marvellous. Uh, called the Waverley, which is... Uh, I, I think all hotels in Scotland are called the Waverley, aren't they? <laughs> That's right, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was like the Premier Inn of his yeah. day. Yeah. And so Grandpa Macaulay... Um, so whether he was getting his whiskey from one brother-in-law mm. uh, or not, I don't know. But he, he certainly, according to my dad, enjoyed more than a wee dram. Yeah. Um, and when my dad died uh, a number of years ago, I had the occasion for the first time in my life to look at my dad's birth certificate. And my grandfather's occupation at the time of my father's birth was hotel boots. 
Oh, what's that? That was the job. Looking after the boots. Exactly. Oh. He worked the night shift, Mike. Yeah. And the the commercial travellers that occupied the hotels in those days left their shoes and boots outside their rooms and they would be there sparkling clean in the morning. Yeah. And that was Grandpa Fred's job. Uh, he did that and he was a hotel porter. And then, as I say, he he had a fondness for, for the dram. Mm. And um, consequently, because of that, my dad, who had obtained a bursary to go to Perth Academy himself back in the day when it was that kind of a school, had to leave at the age of 14 to go and get a job to kind yeah. of bring in a secure income for the family. Common story amongst uh, amongst working-class boys, isn't it? Isn't it? And I certainly fear that it may well be one that's coming around again. Yeah. And whether it was to prove a point or not, I don't know. But Dad um, went as a mature uh, police, I think he was a police sergeant yeah. at the time, uh, to night school when we lived in Blair Gowrie and picked up a couple of hires, A-levels as you would yeah, yeah. They're not quite the equivalent, but they're... And he, he got straight yeah. A's in his hires when he yes. sat them as a mature. He was a smart guy. Yeah, my dad was the same. My dad uh, was well, left school at 14, but then after the war, he went to night school and became a solicitor. Right, brilliant. There we are. I went for a walk the other day with my son and my grandchildren, and we walked to a little village near me, we went through the graveyard and there was a military cemetery with the names of all the people from the uh-huh. village who died in the First World War or the Second World War. And, of course, you know, about 10 people died from the Second World War, but about 150 died from this tiny village. And as you went down it, that awful thing of seeing the same name oh. five times at one point. Yeah. Five times. Yeah. Five sons all killed. Absolutely terrible. Horrible. Yeah. It's extraordinary. And yeah. I don't know if you've ever read, there's a book by a man called John Keegan about the First World War. And there's a graph in it. Uh, it's a seismic graph. So it shows the activity of the guns up until 11 o'clock on the 11th of November, uh-huh. Armistice Day. Uh-huh. And this graph, it, the guns keep going right up until 11 o'clock and then they stop dead. And then there are two tiny little bips after it. And in the explanation for these bips, it turns out that one was a soldier letting off his firearm in celebration of the war being over, and the second is his officer shooting him dead for disobeying a command. Jeez. Oh, my God. Isn't that terrifying? That is chilling. I mean, that is one of those things that just sends a shiver right down your spine as you hear it. Yes. Well, and I never really pursued this with my dad, but he told me that, um, and I don't know if my grandfather was part of it, but he told me that my grandfather's regiment, uh, they had to take it in turns to shoot deserters. You know, the guys that couldn't take it anymore and they would just be shot in the field. Oh, my God. I mean, it's so Mm. brutal. Yeah, absolutely. But also, and I can't can't remember the name of it, but there was a terrible shipping disaster at the end of the First World War up in the Outer Hebrides. Right. And I should know the name of it, but... You know, there was uh, hundreds of men coming home oh. from the war. The ones that had survived the war, they had survived the Spanish flu, and they were within hundreds of yards of Stornoway Harbour, mm. and the ship went down and they, they perished. You know, <sighs> some of them managed to make it ashore. Uh, just It's so, a brutal so time. Tragic. It's a really brutal yeah. period of human history, isn't it? I, I don't think we would have been unique uh, in our family. You know, with our kids, uh, we've got three 
uh, our youngest Ian, he came back from Australia just when lockdown happened with his girlfriend. So they were with us. But then my daughter, who's only about six or seven miles away, and my son, other son, Jack, who's through in Edinburgh, 50 miles from our uh, house door to door. And we've got WhatsApp and mm-hmm. we've got all these ways of communicating with each other. And lockdown has been something that none of us had ever experienced and for, for many of us quite the most extreme thing that we have experienced in our life. Yeah. And then you think there were people sending off three, four, five of their sons to the First World War mm-hmm. with no communication whatsoever. No. And they're at war, you know. I mean, what must have gone through the parents' minds? Oh, That's terrifying. Unbearable. Yeah. Cause we've got nothing to complain about, really. Yeah. And maybe yeah. in another generation, people might not appreciate just how significant that kind of thing was, you know, but mm. uh, I hope they yeah. do. Well, I'm sure they will, actually. I can't see that once you hear about it, it's so extraordinary that it stays with you, doesn't it? Yeah. Through your life, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, well, we're going to take that family tree, Fred, and stick it in there. Good. First of all, most importantly, to remember your granddad, <laughs> but secondly, to prove that you are nothing to do with that awful man. Whose name cannot be said. Yeah, It cannot be said. We can't say that name. Yeah. No, not on my podcast. Thank you. Okay, lovely. So that's that's three things. Yeah. yeah. And we've only been talking for 12 hours. <laughs> well, I can tell you that the next one is not going to take very long at all. I don't mind, you know, if you've no. got the time I have, but I'm sure you, you've got other things to do. <laughs> you think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Fred, what's your fourth item? Cadbury's buttons. <laughs> And what's your fifth item? (laughs) (laughs) So Cadbury's buttons, open brackets, giant closed brackets, if you don't mind. (laughs) I don't mind at all. I love a milk chocolate, I really do. Um, They're not good for the cholesterol, so they're an absolute treat. Yeah. And I... uh, Cadbury's milk chocolate is as sophisticated as I get. I'm, I'm, I've never been one for Bourneville. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have a sweet tooth. So there you are. And uh, I, don't, I don't know why it has to be buttons. No. Well, I suppose it's this proper, simple, bite size. That's exactly right, isn't it? That's what you want. <laughs> well, you say life. bite size. I've been known to open the packet and tip them all in my mouth at once. <laughs> <laughs> what, the giant ones? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's it. There is a whole world of chocolate out there, though, Fred, isn't there? You know, and uh, yeah. you're not a great experimenter. Um, well, oh, no, no, no. I mean, I've, uh, I wonder, you know, if you look at the, the confectionery, uh, you know, the, the shelves and shelves and shelves <laughs> that, that, that there are in a supermarket or as you're approaching to pay for your fuel, yeah. uh, you're always tempted by by something there. Uh, I reckon, no, I won't, I won't have strayed too far from a bar of maybe the occasional fruit and nut if I'm yeah. feeling like I'm feeling healthy. You'd think you'd be a five a day. Oh, no, I mean, that'd be a Terry's chocolate orange. My <laughs> God, you must be so healthy. <laughs> well, I, I once had to write what the Scottish five a day was. Um, I think I said Terry's chocolate orange, vodka and orange, <laughs> chips, roast potato and baked potato. <laughs> Yeah, that's five. <laughs> that's five. <laughs> oh, lovely. Well, I mean, with chocolate, I'm, I'm with you on this because people say, oh, look at this chocolate. It's unbelievable. It's it's handmade bar of chocolate. <laughs> Incredible. It's 80% cocoa. Like, oh, wow. Have a taste. And you go, oh. 
Yeah, it's not very good, is it? I don't like it. It doesn't taste anything <laughs> like Cadbury's. And now, of course, you get these tubs of heroes and celebrations and um, that are kind of like palatable quality street. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Number of fillings that I've got in my teeth, thanks to <laughs> Cadbury's and other sweetie manufacturers, I'm going nowhere near a toffee. That's, that's, that's like putting your head in a noose, it really is. Yeah. I would see those big tins of celebration as basically an attempt to completely destroy the concept of environmentalism. <laughs> How many wrapping papers can we get into one item? I know. I mean, if Cadbury started putting the buttons out in a recyclable packet, then there's no excuse not to eat them. No, no, no. In fact, you'd be doing the world a favour. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, I'm going to put... It'll have to be an endless supply. Yeah. Because I don't want to end up with just an empty packet if you sort of, you know, have a sneak peek inside and yeah. go, well, I just have one. I'll just have another one. That's what happens. Yeah. There's no such thing as one Jaffa cake. You know that? <laughs> no. Nobody has ever had one Jaffa cake. <laughs> it's true. All right, that's in the time capsule. So that was okay. that was easy. Right, so where are we? We've got one, one more. Yeah. We've done chocolate buttons. Yep. We've done your family tree. Yep. We've done your skis. Bit of skis. And we've also got the sign of the comedy store. Yeah. So that's four things that's that you four. treasure. So what's the thing you want to get rid of? Uh, the Lord's Prayer, which all through school, certainly secondary school, we had to say three times a week at morning assembly. Yeah. And then once a week uh, if I was at Sunday school, and I, I didn't go to Sunday school all the time. I, I went to Sunday school as a, a youngster, probably primary age. I wasn't really attentive, I'll be honest. <laughs> but uh, I, I knew that if you went every Sunday, you got a prize at the end of the year for perfect attendance. Right. Uh, and that was more important to me than actually absorbing anything that the minister was trying to tell us. Yeah. But the, the Lord's Prayer, and it was something that, having said that, it was it was done maybe three three times four times a week. I doubt that I could recite it to you. Really? Yeah, because when it was happening, you know, through school morning assembly, we, we had to stand. Did, did did you did you stand at morning assembly? Always, yeah. yeah. And and all all you really wanted to do was work your way up towards the back of the room till you were mm. sixth year, when morning assembly was huge fun. I mean, the rest of the time it was a bit of a chore, but it was huge. When you were in sixth year, it was great fun because... Yeah, when you first started, you would be sitting with cross legs yeah. at the front, wouldn't you? You didn't <laughs> even have a seat. Exactly. And you would you would have respect for all your seniors and the mm. teachers. By the time you're in sixth year, you're, you're pretty much Jack the Lad, Cock of the North, you know it all. And it was just as well you were standing because that enabled the pushing somebody into the centre of a circle when somebody had farted uh, all the more easy <laughs> seeing whose turn it had been to go in to the assembly hall beforehand and fill the piano with hymn books so that when the music teacher started to strike up something <laughs> it was just a series of bum notes it was good fun and I, I didn't really it, it was the language of the lord's prayer that i never really it was you know our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name it's a funny name isn't it yeah, but, yeah. and uh I, I didn't know too much, you know, at that age, much about debts and debtors. And I'll be honest, even as an accountant, I didn't know an awful lot more about <laughs> debtors. And there's such a large area of it that seems to be about private land. Yeah. Because people trespassing. I see, that was an English thing. We didn't have trespassing. Ah. 
I think it's because there, there's a, a right of way in Scotland. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that is an English thing. <laughs> God, God's on your side. You, do, you don't have those that yeah. trespass against you in Scotland. I always remember as a child interpreting it that way, though, you know, uh, uh-huh. forgive us our trespasses uh-huh. and those who trespass against us. Uh, well, we forgive us our debts ah. as we forgive our debtors. Really? And uh, thy kingdom come, thine will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. Uh, I guess it was maybe a test just to see if you were, you know, of an inquisitive mind and whether you were going to buy into religion or not. And it, and it yeah. passed me by. Uh, so maybe it's not just the Lord's Prayer, it's maybe all religion that I'm going to leave behind. Uh, and it's, it's somewhere that I've looked <laughs> looked for uh, for comedy uh, over the years as well. And I'm going to tell you a wee story about it. I wrote a routine last year thinking about, you know, that the meek shall inherit the earth. Mm. And I was thinking, well, I don't know that the meek probably want to inherit the earth anymore <laughs> because, one... It'd be a hell of an inheritance tax bill. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing was that I thought maybe the meek would have had the earth by now. Yeah. And if the meek haven't got the earth, are they going to be pissed off, right? <laughs> and then I was thinking, if there's a bunch of people you don't want to piss off, it's the meek. <laughs> right? When they turn... Oh, I know. Can you imagine? Oh. Um, so I thought, well, there's a kernel of something here, right? So Very nice, that was, yeah. And I had another couple of lines like that, and I thought, well, and this is how stand-up works. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe you have an idea, and, you know, I've never been one that's had a, something fully formed before I've gone on stage. I've had the idea, I've had notes, I've had lines written down, and I wow. took to the stage uh, at the stand in Glasgow with this thinking... Here's a new routine in the, in the making. <laughs> I have never seen so many blank faces in my life. Really? Right? Because none of these people have been at Sunday school. None of them uh, have studied the Bible at all. And I said, do you know who the meek are? No. Well, who are the meek? Right? So has the world changed then? Do people not constantly say the Lord's Prayer when they're children? I guess not. No. I don't know. I guess, you know, we're in a multicultural society, especially here yeah. in the west of Scotland. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how much of... I'm not objecting to it, Fred. You know, I'm not saying <clears throat> no, that no. they should do. I'm just saying, you know, it surprises oh. me. Yeah, I know. The thing that really annoys me about the Lord's Prayer, and always has, uh-huh. is that nobody ever, and this will be the actor in me coming out from a very early age, nobody ever follows the punctuation in it. So the pauses in it are that are like somebody doing bad poetry. <laughs> Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth. Yeah. No, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's brilliant. Well observed. When I do go to church occasionally uh-huh. and we have to do the Lord's Prayer, I will always join those things up. <laughs> yeah. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a comma after on earth. The rest of the congregation going, oh, aye. The actor's in. Bloody actors. There he is. Fenton Stevens with us, right? Yeah, (laughs) that's exactly what they do. The other thing I'd (laughs) thought about was, um, do you remember Cool Shy Loam's Shady Rill? I don't know. There was a hymn, by Cool Shy Loam's Shady Rill. And I was thinking, who who is this guy Shy Loam? And and he's cool, right? I mean, yeah. How cool is he? He's not just got a rill; he's got a shady rill. 
Yeah. This guy this guy's worth checking out now. <laughs> We've all got a reel. Yeah. <laughs> Shady. Uh, but and, and I, I I don't know whether it's a place or a person or or what, but no. uh, it's one yeah. of those things that's stuck in my mind over the years. But at the same time, when things are modernised and taken out of the sort of St. James Bible or whatever, mm-hmm. it, or the King James Bible. King James, yeah. King, not St. James. I don't think he was beatified. Um, <laughs> so when they are done, then they're shit, aren't they? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Have you done a modern translation of this, Mike? Have you? <laughs> you should do. Yeah, that's true. This is your stand-up debut that you've been thinking about doing. <laughs> right, me going through the Bible. And Come to Glasgow and do do some biblical stuff. I'll, I'll do a lot of stuff about the meek. They love it up there. It goes down really well. <laughs> Damn you, Macaulay. I'll be at the back with all my comedy chums going, wait, you see this. This is yeah. <laughs> hook, line and sinker. Yeah, making a note of the one joke that does work. <laughs> you bastard. Yeah. Oh, Fred, that's fantastic. Okay, well, I'm going to put the Lord's Prayer and possibly all religion into the time capsule. All right. We'll seal it up. So that's it. Thank you so much for talking to me about the things that you treasure and the one thing that you want to get rid of. It's been really great. An absolute pleasure, Mike. It's great to talk to you. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Fred McCauley. You can listen to this episode again, if you want to, and all other episodes by subscribing to this podcast on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you want more information about past and future episodes, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You just search My Time Capsule. If you have the time, we'd love it if you would rate the podcast and leave a small review. Thank you very much. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens, and the music is by Pass the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production. So, until next time, I'm off to dig out my skis. I used to be quite good at skiing when I first started. Sadly, it's all been downhill since then. Yes, I know they can't all be gems. What do you want, blood? Honestly. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.